Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we talk about the use of military air and spacecraft from their earliest days up to today and into the future. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your co-host, Brian Lastly. And our guest today is Dr. Katherine Sharp Landek. Kate is an associate professor of history at the Texas Women's University, the home of the WASP archives. She is a Guggenheim Fellow at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum and a graduate of the University of Tennessee, where she earned her PhD. Uh, this evening, we are going to be talking about her new book, The Women with Silver Wings, the inspiring true story of the women Air Force service pilots of World War II. Uh, Dr. Landek, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So I actually want to start off a little bit further back, the 1920s, the 1930s. Talk to us for just a minute about flight during that period, but more importantly, the role of women in flight in those days. Right. Well, you know, obviously this was uh, the golden age of aviation and uh, such an important time in the development of, of aircraft and in the love of aviation across the country, really across the world. And women were a part of it. You know, everybody knows about Amelia Earhart and that's, you know, the general public, that's quite often all they think of. But there were so many women who were, were an important part in test flying and stunting and uh, just a huge part of that passion for aviation that grew and, and helped the whole industry. So you have, you have a lot of women that are really vital to the whole thing. Yeah, and in particular, uh, you really highlight, well, dozens of, of women throughout the book, but in particular, getting the program off the ground is Jacqueline Cochran and Nancy Hartness Love. And I think there are some things they have in common, but there's many things that make them different. So uh, what sets them apart? Right. Well, I think, uh, you know, they do have a lot in common. You're quite right that they're both competitive and very good pilots, but they, they have different attitudes and different ambitions uh, with aviation, where Nancy Love wants to make strides in aviation as a field and does a lot of test flying and that type of thing at the air marking program in the 1930s. And Jackie Cochran sees aviation as a tool for her success. She uses it to initially to promote her cosmetics company uh, and then to gain fame uh, for herself with the idea that she would be promoting her her cosmetics company, but, but uh, very competitive, very much wanting to be in the limelight where Nancy kind of is more satisfied being behind the scenes, but they're equally ambitious uh, and equally competitive, which I think is a, a really interesting part of both their characters. So I'm really enjoying how your book goes kind of beyond these two. I mean, for those that are familiar with this history, you know, Cochran and Love are probably the most famous names associated with this movement, but you've really highlighted a lot of other individuals mm -hmm. as well. And I'm, I'm curious how much of the drive to get women into these roles, into these military aviation roles, is due to the force of these two individuals? And how much is it this kind of broader advocacy? Is there a way for these kind of advocates working on a much broader level to talk directly? to leadership? Like, what is the mechanism there uh, that's really working? And how much of it is individual versus more kind of grassroots? Right. I, I think it's a, a little bit of both. You know, there were a number of women who were had the same idea, right? This idea of the war is coming or the war is here and we want to have women flying and doing their part for the war effort and, and flying as pilots. But there were a number of women who had the same idea, right? Phoebe Amelie was one. There were a group of women in, in California that, that were another. So you have, you have several women across the country that are doing the same thing, trying to 
to get women ready to help with the war effort and things like this. But Nancy Love and Jackie Cochran are able to make it happen because they have those connections. Because, you know, Jackie had sat next to General Arnold and uh, Robert Olds. Uh, at different uh, aviation events when she was winning the Harmon Award and, and different things like that. Uh, Nancy Love, uh, you know, worked in the Air Transport Command office as a civilian and had dinner with Robert Olds and uh, was family friends with them. They were all members of the Long Island Aviation Country Club as well. So, you know, it's those personal connections that were able to take Nancy and Jackie's ideas and put them in the forefront and really make it happen as compared to the other women who who had the ideas, who had the same ambitions and skills and just didn't have those connections. Now that, uh, for some of our, our listeners who are into the fighter pilot scene, it, Robert Olds there is the father of the famed Robin Olds, right? Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's correct. Absolutely. Fantastic. So in order to get the, the WASP program off the ground, Nancy and Jackley needed the support of, of male allies in positions of power. This was not something that they were going to be able to do on their own. Now, chief among them was, of course, General Hap Arnold. What was his motivation in, in helping the women? And at the end of the day, was he ultimately a reliable ally? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's a great question and so complex. You know, General Arnold was obviously very busy in the war effort and running a lot of things. And he had these women, Jackie and Nancy, both and their allies, Olds and and eventually George and Tunner and and all these folks that were advocating for the women. But he was the final say-so. He could say yes or no. And he said no for for a couple of years uh, and, and didn't agree to it until finally in the fall of 42, things were rough. The United States was not doing well in the war. We were behind and we needed more pilots desperately. Uh, So he agreed to let the experiment of women flying military planes go on. And, and it's important to realize, you know, General Arnold knew that these women could fly these planes. You know, he had Jackie Cochran fly a bomber across the Atlantic before this started to help raise awareness and get more pilots uh, flying, civilian pilots flying. Uh, so he knew that they were capable. He knew that they could do this. It was a concern about the image that it would give the United States in our desperation, that we were so desperate that we needed women to fly our planes. That was a real concern that, that he vocalized, that, that he was worried about it, that we would look too desperate if we used women. On a second note, General Arnold was one of the original advocates of an independent Air Force. He was an ally and friend of Billy Mitchell and that whole gang. And that shaped what he did during the war. It shaped the tactics that the United States used in our aerial warfare. And it shaped what he did with the women because he didn't want the women to be he didn't want to have any failures, and he didn't want the Air Force, Army Air Forces to look bad. Uh, he didn't want women to get killed. That's partly why the women weren't allowed to fly overseas, because he didn't want them to be killed overseas. So it was it was a big part of his position, even with the women. And the question of, was he a reliable ally? In the end, he's the one that disbands the women in December of 1944. And he does it again, because there are enough male pilots coming in, and he doesn't want to be seen as favoring these women. There were male pilots sitting on the ground while the women were flying. So he supported the women. He believed in the women, but he didn't support them enough to advocate for them past Congress and past too many other uh, trials, if you will. 
Did you ever come across any references to these men discussing, you know, the fact that women are flying for the Soviet Union or were they completely unaware of that? Uh, I think they very much knew that this was happening. Uh, You have the Soviets are picking up the Lend-Lease planes that the women are flying to Great Falls and then they're being taken through Canada to to Alaska. They knew that women were flying. They were very aware of that, but they were not interested in American women flying combat at all. And again, it was you don't want to look desperate. Uh, and and uh, the Soviets were desperate, mm. uh, and the United States didn't want that image and didn't want American women being killed in combat. The American people weren't ready for American women to serve in combat at all. Now, what we call the WASP program, what history remembers as the WASP, are actually two or more different programs. Walk us through the different but complementary programs and exactly what came to be known as the WASPs. Right. Now, this is where I'm going to correct you a little bit, okay? Uh, (laughs) I am happy to be corrected. (laughs) Good, good. I love that about you. Uh, So the thing is, they're not really two separate programs. They're part of one greater whole. You know, they begin in September of 1942. This group under Nancy Love starts called the Women's Auxiliary Fairing Squadron. And at the same time, Jackie Cochran comes in and says, wait a minute, General Arnold, you said I could run the women's program. And he called them all into the office together. Nancy Love, Jackie Cochran, Robert Olds, who had helped advocate this and says, look, and General George, we're we're not going to have two separate programs. We're going to have one women's program and that's it. So work it out basically. And so what this really is, is it's one women's program. There's a lot of cooperation. And the idea is Nancy Love's WAFs worked for the fairing division right away. They had a probation period of 90 days, just like the male service pilots did. And they were right into the fairing division. They were fully integrated into the fairing division. But there were so few of them. There were only 20, 28 of them in the end. They had to have a lot of flight experience, 200 horsepower rating to get in. They had an average flight time of a thousand hours. So this was a really highly qualified group of women. And there just weren't that many women who were going to be that qualified. There were only about 50 women in the whole country that met the qualifications to be uh, WAFs. And then the second arm of that program is going to be the training program where Jackie Cochran is going to take a group of women to Houston first and then to Sweetwater, Texas, which is just west of uh, Abilene and Fort Worth. Uh, And she's going to take those women who have less flying time, who aren't qualified to be WAFs, and give them a little extra flying time, teach them to fly the Army way and then feed them right into the fairing division. And that's how it worked in the beginning. Those first three classes of trainees graduated and went into the fairing division and wore those gray uniforms of the WAFs and wore the same wings as the WAFs. So it was a flow. Where it changes is in the summer of 1943, the Air Air Transport Command, the fairing division, decide they aren't going to need this many more pilots. It's it's causing some problems that kind of complicated. And Jackie realizes that if women keep funneling right into the fairing command, they're all going to be working for Nancy and she's not going to be in charge of anything. And she and General Arnold had the idea of women doing more than just fairing. So it's in the summer of 1943 that they move beyond that fairing and they expand into different jobs, you know, the towing targets and searchlight tracking missions and and all sorts of things like that. And so that's when they need a new name because WAFs doesn't, you know, Women's Auxiliary Fairing Squadron no longer covers the name 
uh, or the work that they're doing. So they come up with women Air Force service pilots. You know, it took me years to figure this out, but the men, there were service pilots in the Army Air Forces. They had an S on their wings. And so this is where the name came from. They're women service pilots. And General Arnold, there are several cases of him advocating for good acronyms. <laughs> he really wanted a good acronym. And so I suspect, I haven't seen the evidence, but I suspect that he wanted Air Force in there or Jackie came up with it to to make him like the acronym. So they had the acronym WASP, Women Air Force Service Pilots, just like there are male service pilots. Now there are women service pilots who are doing that broader range of duties. So it wasn't a merger of two groups that were separate. It was a renaming that was more accurate of the work that the women were already doing. Does that make sense or is that too complicated? No, well, it, it is complicated, but it does make sense at the same time. It's uh, it is an absolutely fascinating story of how the program developed. Uh, and as long as we're on the subject, the the wasps had an official emblem. Uh, talk to us for just a minute about this emblem because I absolutely love where it comes from. Yeah, so uh, you know when that first class of trainees, forty three W one. Right? the first class of trainees in 1943 started in Houston, they wanted to have a mascot. And so one of them, Bert Hal Granger, wrote to Walt Disney because Disney was handing out characters to different airborne units and different groups to put on their planes or to have as their unit's mascot. And so she wrote to them and said, hey, we're a group of women pilots. We'd really like a mascot. And Walt Disney had purchased the story the Gremlins from Raoul Dahl. Uh, Dahl is the author of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Matilda and The Witches and James and the Giant Peach, all of those books. And he was a pilot in the Royal Air Force and had written this story about gremlins who were little, you know, little creatures that messed with the planes and made things not work well, and then came around to realizing they needed to help with the fight in the war too. And so they were good gremlins. And Fifanella was a female gremlin, and she was there to help pilots and keep the planes together and make things go well. And so Disney gave the wasp Fifanella as their as their mascot, and uh, they they wore her with pride uh, and women pilots wear her with pride to this day. And our, our host, Mike Hankins, will notice that that is not the first time that I have successfully worked Disney into one of our podcasts. I just <laughs> I was counting down the seconds to when is he going to talk about Disney in this episode? Because he brings it up somehow in every episode. <laughs> no matter, no matter like what the subject Dahl is. In there because for years, people, you know, nobody, nobody realizes it's from his book. Because mm-hmm. uh, Disney wanted to make a movie out of it, and then it didn't didn't work out. Because I guess Dahl couldn't get the copyright to the word Gremlins, and so it was a mess, and so it all just went away, and a movie was never made. But we got Fifi out of it, so I think it was a pretty good deal. <laughs> Absolutely, it's amazing the influence that Disney has had on Air Force history when you really think mm-hmm. about it. So these women are certainly, you know, they're trailblazers. They're breaking all these barriers and they're doing all these incredible things. But they're still having to face a lot of kind of strict rules. There's a lot of strict gender roles they have to follow. Can you kind of tell us about some of those rules and some of the special circumstances that they had to deal with? Yeah. So the women were uh, in a very interesting spot where they were pilots. They were military pilots, but they 
they were technically civilians. The idea was after 90 days, they would be brought into the military as second lieutenants. That got complicated and didn't work out. But the expectation from the Army Air Forces all the way down to the individual women was that they would be brought into the military. And so they had to follow all the military protocol. They had demerits. They used the Central Flying Training Command's demerit book uh, while they were in training, all sorts of things. They went to the officers club, they you know saluted and they were saluted, but they were always treated as women, especially by Jackie Cochran. And Jackie was very aware of the image of these women. And you've got to remember there was a lot of mixed messages about women serving in the military at the time. The Women's Army Corps was struggling to recruit women to serve uh, because of bad publicity campaigns against them and things like that. And Jackie was determined that her girls, her words, right, her girls would have a good reputation. And so she watched them like a hawk. She initially was making them go into town and get their hair done once a week. She was very strict about men coming to the airfield. When they first started training in Sweetwater, you know, you have this, after a short time, it was an all women's airfield other than flight instructors and and military officers. Uh, But all the trainees were women. And you have a lot of men serving at nearby bases who are hearing about this. It's like, wait a minute, there's an airfield full of women who know about airplanes? And so you have all these, you know, emergency landings uh, at the different air, at, at Sweetwater. And, uh, you know, oh, no, my engine, I better land and, you know, see these girls for myself. Uh, And Jackie very quickly squashed that. There was just absolutely no way she was going to allow it. And so the whole place develops this reputation and very quickly becomes called Cochran's Convent uh, because she just (laughs) absolutely had, had so many rules for her women because she just was so terrified of their reputation. And she talked a lot about it, you know, for their reputation, for her reputation, and for General Arnold's reputation. She believed in that independent Air Force right alongside him and didn't want any women in her command to damage or harm the opportunity for an independent Air Force later. So that, um, I might be getting a little bit ahead of things here, but that reminds me of something you said a minute ago about how America wasn't ready for women to be serving in this way necessarily. And it seems Mm -hmm. like Cochran probably agreed with that. And the fact that after the war is over, uh, this this program kind of dies down. It's a long time before you get, you know, women in combat roles, things like that. Was America still not ready after the war? And and what kind of changed? How did how did we know when we were ready? and, And what are the driving forces behind that? Uh, that's a really good question. You know, the WASP are disbanded in December of 1944, and women don't get into American women don't get into another military cockpit until 1972 and 1973. So there's a huge quiet period for women as pilots. I have. Over 200 of the WASPs serve in the armed forces in the years after the war, either in the Air Force Reserve or um, in other branches of the military, but they weren't allowed to serve as pilots. They weren't even supposed to wear their wings, which they had earned. Hmm. Uh, Many of them did and dared anybody to tell them to take them off. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. But they, they, uh, you know, they, they weren't allowed to fly anymore. And in the 1970s is when we see that shift. And I really think there's a combination of things uh, in the 1970s that helps get women back into the military cockpit. That Equal Rights Amendment that was passed uh, in 1972, it it doesn't get ratified. Uh, It was three votes short. 
short of being ratified to be made an amendment to the Constitution, but it does pass and was expected to be ratified. So starting in 1972, the different branches of the armed forces, and you can go back and look at the literature from you know, their documents from the time. They had serious conversations about this is going to happen. Let's do it on our own terms. And they did this with the military academies as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they started letting women in in very small numbers and very, you know, little test cases, you know, 10, 12 women here and there. Uh, and all the branches, the Army, the Navy uh, and the Air Force, even the Coast Guard gets women flying. And this challenge is there. I think the reality of Vietnam was a big part of it. And mm-hmm. the shift to the all volunteer force was really important as well in the mid 1970s. Because then all of a sudden you're looking at, okay, there's a whole nother pool of people that we can recruit to be a part of the military. So there's a lot of shifts. You know, women had only been 2%, had been limited to being only 2% of the military up to the 1970s. And that slowly starts to grow and change. So there's a huge turning point there in the 1970s for women in all parts of the military, but definitely as pilots. Yeah. So I want to go back to these women with silver wings here. You know, one of the things that really sets your book apart is you highlight several other women. I think the traditional stories we've kind of covered is Nancy Love and Jackie Cochran. And I was curious if any of these other kind of lesser known stories of individual women uh, really jumped out at you in your research. Yeah, so my work when I started on this, I, I started, you know, in, in academia with this story as a master's thesis and then a dis- doctoral dissertation. And I've gone through many versions of this book before I kind of settled on this because I wanted to tell the story of the WASP, of the women themselves, of their motivations. You know, why did they do this? <laughs> you know, what, what made them want to do this? And were they any good? You know, everybody knew that they were cool, but I wanted to know if they were any good as pilots. They were were. I, I, you can go look at my master's thesis. I proved that. Uh, but, but uh, you know, it was those women that got me into the story and whose story I wanted to tell. Uh, so I think that was my goal was to tell the story of the women themselves. I used oral histories. And so I knew a lot of these women. I, I did, you know, well over 100 oral histories and got more questionnaires and things like that, because that's what I wanted people to know about was these very ordinary, you know, young women women who volunteered, you know, every woman veteran you ever meet in the United States is a volunteer. And these women all volunteered to fly these military planes during the war, not knowing where it would lead them. Uh, And so those are the stories I wanted to tell. You asked, you know, if any particular ones jumped out at me, there are a number, obviously. uh, And there are a number of women who had to be left out of this story, which was heartbreaking, uh, because I was friends with many of them that that I had to cut from the story. But when I decided on the three women that we kind of follow all the way through the book, Teresa James, Dora Dougherty Struther, and uh, Marty Weil, I chose them because in part I had the sources. They all had letters or diaries from the war, in part because they follow all the way through the story. You're right, my book is different from others that have been written in that it takes them from the 1930s through the war years and then, you know, the 1950s and 60s all the way to their fight for veterans recognition and and the Congressional Gold Medal and the burial at Arlington in 2016. So it's a long story. Uh, So I chose women that we could follow all the way through. Uh, And then I knew all three of these women personally. I had done oral histories with them. I had lots of phone calls with them and emails 
panels with them to make sure I had different aspects of the story because they could really each tell a different part of the story. Uh, so that's that's why I chose the women I did. But there were there were so many that I had to leave out and had to cut. Uh, so it would be a book that people would pick up and buy, not the you know twelve hundred page book that I really wanted to write. So. Uh, <laughs> It was it was quite an adventure. Well, I got to tell you, and for everyone that's listening, it is not only a book that, that people can pick up, uh, it is a book that people should pick up. It is not often that an academic work really strikes a chord with me, but I thought that this was uh, an absolutely spectacular work of history. Thank you. I appreciate that. And and I the goal was to write it in a way that my mom would like it, honestly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> She's not an academic and, and to write it in a way that everyday people would read it. So I've tried to write it in a narrative style, kind of Eric Larson and Lauren Hillenbrand. Not that I'm as good as them, but but that's the style that I, I tried to go for where it was factual, but not academic, if you will. But thank you for your kind words about it. I appreciate it. I wanted to ask you um, about race a little bit because... Mm-hmm. You know, I we're the assumption being we're when we talk about these women pilots that we're talking about white women. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that there's African Americans serving kind of in the construction aspect of these planes, production, and and this is the same time period that the Tuskegee Airmen are doing their thing. To what degree is race being discussed in this program, or is it not impacting at all? Right. Well, the the reality is that race is a conversation that Jackie and Nancy are are having and are are concerned about. Um, you know, there are two Chinese American women who serve, uh, Hazel Ayang Lee and Maggie G, who uh, we were allies with China. And so these Chinese American women were allowed in despite the racism at the time. One Native American woman, Ola Rexwoat, was admitted to the program. But no African American women were allowed in, despite the fact that there were a number who were well qualified. I have the names of six. I'm working to gather more, but I have the names of six Black women who applied to the program who were qualified, but were rejected strictly because of their race. And there were a couple of them who trained with the Tuskegee Airmen, active pilots in, in World War II. So they just had had one too many marks against them that they were women. If they'd been men, they could have been a Tuskegee Airman. If they'd been, you know, a white woman, they could have been a wasp. Uh, but that racial reality uh, got in the way. And Jackie Cochran uh, justified this a little bit. Uh, she interviewed a couple of them and talked about it in later oral histories. And she said the reality was that it was hard enough to get the women to have these opportunities, to get the military planes for them, to get the different flying jobs that she wanted for them, to make it a desegregated unit at the time that the armed forces were segregated uh, was just just too much. And she thought it would be too difficult. Nancy Love worried about ferry pilots, uh, if there were any black women ferry pilots, because you have so many hotels that wouldn't admit black Americans into them, so many yeah. restaurants that wouldn't admit so many black Americans into them. So I've not found any black pilots that served in the ferry command. I, I could be wrong and would love to be corrected, but I think that was just something that wasn't done because there were so many obstacles, racist obstacles, but very real obstacles in the way. That's something that the WASP talk about to this day and recognize that black women who were qualified were not allowed in. They actually, there was one, Mildred Carter, that when the WASP were given their congressional gold medal, they gave one to her uh, because they knew her story that she had applied and been rejected and she was well qualified. And they wanted to recognize her that different circumstances are better times and she would have been one of them. Uh, So it's something that they're all very aware of. You've mentioned, you know, being friends with some of these people and interviewing them and 
having access to diaries and stuff. What were the kind of research trajectories that you use? Like what kind of sources did you use? What did you find the most interesting? And I know where you were at is where the WASP archives are, but what kind of good sources did you find most useful? Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that question because I always like to talk about the research side of it just to kind of distinguish it from anything else. I started this project, I met my first WASP in 1993, uh, which was 100 years wow. ago, right? I mean, <laughs> the last century, right? <laughs> And, and uh, you know, the internet was non-existent compared to what it is and, and all of those things. So I started the hard way. I, I, I met a wasp just by chance, and she wrote on a little index card her name and address. And after I'd gone to Oshkosh to EAA in the summer of 93, bought a few books on the wasp. There were only two or three available and learned as much as I could. And then I wrote to Carol, Carol Bailey Bosca, and said, hey, I'd, I'd like to do some oral histories. I had started graduate school because I wanted to learn how to do history the right way and write about the WASP. And so I had some very good training at the University of Tennessee. And I went to Ohio, to Xenia, Ohio, uh, where the International Women's Air and Space Museum had a fly-in. And I went to that and started my oral histories. And so that's really how I started, was that just some basic books and starting my oral histories. And then I went from there and was able to get official documents, right? Uh, Air Force had all sorts of reports that they do at the end of different things. Uh, so historical report number 55 is all about the WASP. Uh, so I started with that. And then I used their footnotes to find other historical reports that the military had done. And then the WASP started their archives at Texas Women's University in 1993. So it was very fortuitous that they started getting some materials at that time, right when I'm ready to do my research. And of course, it's a huge archive now. But people started donating their letters and their diaries. And I was able to use those in a lot of my initial work. So that combination of primary sources and corroborating stories and trying to move beyond just the WASP. I interviewed Paul Tibbetts a couple of times and mm. Antonia uh, Hayes uh, Chase uh, about when the WASP got their veterans benefits and uh, lots of follow-ups and lots of digging, newspapers, you know, all sorts of things, but as many primary sources as I could to corroborate those oral histories, get those first-person accounts, get those motivations, uh, but then use those those primary sources, both the government documents and those personal letters and diaries to kind of get as big a picture as I could to see it from all sides. I, I tried to use the rule of three, where anything that's in the book, I've probably found three sources that say the same thing mm -hmm. uh, from, from different perspectives to just make sure that I'm not guessing. There's no guessing in the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. I think that is about all the time we have. I really, really appreciate that. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Once again, the book is The Women with Silver Wings, The Inspiring True Story of the Women Air Force Service Pilots of World War II, available wherever the finest books are sold. Are you active uh, online? Where can we find more of you? Yep, I'm at Kate Landek on Twitter, and I do have a website, katherinesharplandek.com, and there's a reader's guide if anyone is interested in a book club, questions and that type of thing. And I do, um, I do talk to book clubs and different groups and different museums as well. So you can get in touch with me through the website and at Twitter. Thank you. That's so cool having a little reading guide with uh, questions out there on the website. I think mm -hmm. that's a great idea. I, I might borrow that. Brian, where can we find you online? So you can find me at brianlastly.com. And I am happy to say that once again, you can find me again on Twitter. I am at brianlastly. 
good to have you back on Twitter, Brian. And I'm Mike Hankins. You can find me on Twitter at Hankenstein with T-I-E-N. And we're all online at balloonstodrones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook under digitalfishmedia.org. If you would like to send us an email or contact us for any reason, please visit balloonstodrones.com slash contact. And if you want to submit an article to us for publication, we love to get those. You can do that at balloonstodrones.com slash submissions. Thank you so much, and we will see you all next time.